go with me to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73 is where we'll find our text at for our time in the Scriptures here today. Boy, I'm so excited to continue on in our series, But God, we have been marching through the Scriptures, looking at passages of Scripture that mention the theme, But God. And it is written all throughout the Bible, and every time you come to a But God passage in Scripture, to the left of But God, what you have is a lot of messed up situations. A lot of hopeless situations, a lot of heartache, a lot of trouble, a lot of turmoil. When you read on to the right of but God, everything changes. When you put but God in any situation, everything changes. You find hope and light and life. That's what happens when uh, but God enters to your situation. I read a uh, story from Miss Diane who's playing the piano for us today uh, of, her, of her upbringing. And it was actually, when she was three years old, her brother, older brother got in a car accident and lost his life. And you think, what's good about that? Well, there's not anything good about that but God. God used that to bring her parents to Christ. That's why she's here today playing the piano, because through her parents coming to Christ, she came to Christ, her kids came to Christ, and so the legacy continues. There's a lot of messed up things we've got to go through in this world. I'm thankful that there's always but God. I'm thankful that there's always that. And so Psalm chapter 73 is where we're going to find our text for today. Now this psalm was written by the worship leader uh, for the people of Israel. I was talking to Bill and uh, to Barrett about this this week. And um, if you know anything about people that are musical, they tend to be uh, very emotional as well. They're able to express themselves really well. Um, and... Uh, uh, I'm a musician too, so I can say that, okay? And uh, when you read this psalm, the sense that you get from this psalm is, man, this guy is being really honest. He's been very transparent, being really real uh, with us as we read through this psalm. And uh, this man, Asaph was his name, was a song leader of Israel. He conveys here an episode of his own experience with God in verse number 1, I want you to notice what he says. This is what the Bible says. Psalm 73, verse 1. If you're there, say amen. The Bible says, Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There came a point in Asaph's life where he almost walked away from God. If you can even fathom it. As he looked, the Bible says here, at the prosperity of the wicked people around him, it caused him to lose heart. It caused him to doubt in his mind. He was really living for the right thing. Seemed like everybody else was doing so well, not living for God. And here he was trying to live for God, and everything was falling apart. In a very real sense, Asaph was tempted to lose faith. Have you ever been there before? You're tempted to lose faith? Have you ever come to a point in life when you thought, 
not worth it. I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to live for God and nothing's going my way. You ever been tempted to walk out on God? Because of the circumstances that are going on in your life. You know, in the scriptures, there's a lot of people that went through this. They had the same struggle. People that probably would surprise you. Elijah, the great prophet of Israel, gave up in the wilderness. John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, Jesus said, doubted his faith. He did. Peter, oh boy, we know about Peter, don't we? Denying the Lord three different times. Listen, this struggle is more common than you'd probably think. And for some of you right now, it's more real than what you'd like to admit. Perhaps it's a struggle you're yet to face or you faced in your past. And I'll tell you, our enemy has an agenda to get us to a place where we're tempted to lose faith. It's exactly where he wants us to be. And if you let him, he will tempt you to walk away from God. He'll put a lie in your mind that will convince you that it's not worth it. He'll convince you to walk away from what God is calling you to. That's why before Peter was tempted of the devil in this, in this same area, Jesus spoke to him and he said, Simon, Simon Peter, Satan has desired to have you so that he can sift you like wheat. Sift means to shake, to shake your faith. That's what Jesus warned Peter. That's what Satan's going to do to you. He's going to try to shake your faith. He's going to try to get you to get to a place where you think you just need to walk away from me, walk away from the things that I've taught you. But then he told Peter, but I prayed for you. And when you are converted, then go strengthen your brethren. That's what he told them. And if it can happen for Peter, it can happen for you and me. You make no mistake about it. And there will be circumstances in your life that Satan will try to use to get you to lose your faith, to shake you in your faith. But I'll tell you this, you may be tempted to lose faith, but God has a way of recovering it. And you may have walked out on God here today. This may be the first time you darkened the doors of a church in a long time. Guess what? Lightning didn't strike. The, the, the building didn't burn down, okay? So there you have it. This might, you might have walked out on God. But friend, God has not walked out on you. He has not. And today, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I want you to notice what Asaph said in the end of this. We'll come around to it in a, in a minute. Again, at the end of the sermon, Verse 26, let's read it out loud together. The Bible says, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart fail, but God. And as we look at this very transparent account in Psalm chapter 73, I want us to notice four steps you must take when you lose faith. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and ask God to speak to our hearts together. You pray in your heart as I pray out loud. Father, we come before you. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to worship you. Thank you for how you've already uh, ministered to our heart in song as we sing of your faithfulness, as we sing of your greatness, as we have taken time to sing of your being lifted on high. Lord, these truths have brought our hearts uh, closer, closer to you in worship. And now I pray that our hearts would be open to you in speaking to us through your word. And whether or not we think the theme of this message is something we need, it's your word. And there's something in it for us. 
And I pray that we'd open up our hearts and be willing to listen to it and let you speak to us. And I pray that you would use me, Lord, as you see fit to communicate your word. I pray it would be uh, convicting today, Lord, clear uh, in what the Bible says, and Lord, concise, and help us, Lord, to be able to do it in your strength and power. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Four uh, uh, steps you must take when you lose faith. If you're taking notes, you can write this first one down. First step you need to take when you begin, when you're tempted to lose faith, is you need to remember a fundamental principle. You need to remember a fundamental principle. Now, I'm a Hoosier. How many of you know what that means? All right, when I say Hoosier, when one word, what does that mean to you? All right, Indiana, somebody said, somebody, somebody got it right, it's basketball, okay, of course. All right, I grew up in Indiana, my parents are here today, I'm a Hoosier, I love the game of basketball. I didn't even know there were other sports until Peyton Manning came to Indiana, okay? And so I love the game of basketball, and as I learned basketball, one, one of the things I learned to be very important were something called the fundamentals. Now, what are the fundamentals? Well, it's just basic things, dribbling, passing, shooting, shooting right, uh, boxing out, rebounding, the basic things. You know, whenever I started to get off in my game as a young man playing basketball, my coach would always remind me to go back to something, the fundamentals, the thing that make the game work. Those are, those are the fundamental principles, and you know there are some fundamental principles of God that every one of us need to understand. Job, in the middle of, of his trial, he held on to the funda- a fundamental principle of God. He held on to God's sovereignty. I don't know what you're doing, God, but I know you know what you're doing. And uh, many other people, Habakkuk held on to the uh, holiness of God, and other people throughout Scripture have held on to fundamental principles of God that have helped see them through their trials. But here, the psalmist holds on to a unique fundamental principle about God. Look at verse 1. What does he say there? He says, truly, God is what? Good. Good. Now, can I get a little more volume in this microphone? I feel like I'm having to shout. Do you all hear me okay? Okay. Well... I'll still ask for it anyway, so I don't have to shout as much. But truly, God is what? Good. There's the principle. God is good. Now, that's a truth you can hold on to no matter what you're going through in your life. The first thing he told himself as he began this psalm is that he found out that God is good. And there's several things about the goodness of God that I want you to understand. The first thing is this, and it's not definitively in this text, but it's clearly taught in the Scripture. The Bible says, truly, God is good. The fact of the matter is that God is generally good to all society. It's the first thing I want you to write down there. He's good to all society. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 145 and verse number 9, the Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His work. You understand as well as I do that there's not a person alive who hasn't to some degree experienced the goodness of God. In Acts chapter 17, the the Apostle Paul stands up to preach and says that one of the reasons God has manifested His goodness and that He makes it rain and brings forth crops and uh, makes the sun to rise and to set in these things, the reason He does this to all men is to reveal to them that He is real and that they need Him. To the saved. Now look at verse 1. Truly God is good to who? Israel. Israel. Specifically, the psalmist noted that God was good to his people. The people that 
were called Israel, the people that he called out at his own, the people that he rescued from bondage, the people that he led through the wilderness, the people that he brought in and gave the promised land to. God is specifically good to them, his chosen people. And by way of application, just let me say this. Those of us that are saved today, in a certain sense, we understand that God has been equally good to us in the same measure. Hey, he has brought us out rescued us from the bondage of our sin, and given us the inheritance of his eternal glory. Hey, we have a taste of God's goodness that people that aren't saved cannot possibly understand. God is, especially, God is specifically good to the saved, but note this down as well. God is especially good to the sincere. Now look at the verse 1 again. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as be of what? A clean heart. More specifically here, the psalmist noted how God is good to those who live for him in purity and sincerity. Sincerity is literally uh, what, the, what the connotation of the word clean means, a clean heart. And it's talking about someone who is genuine, someone who is living with a, a sincere life. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but it means they have a sincere desire for the Lord. And you know, as a matter of principle, the Bible's telling us here is that, that God is good to those who really do have a heart to want to live for Him. Now, it doesn't mean you do it perfectly, but, but God, God, God is going to manifest a, a, a type of a, a special goodness to the person who seeks after him. Second Chronicles, the Bible tells us that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. The Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 84 and verse 11 that no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 125 and verse 4, Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good in Israel. And so this is a principle that will keep you grounded no matter what other circumstances might be going on in your life. And that principle is this, God is good. He's good to all people. But listen, God is especially good to those people. Even when it doesn't seem like things are going your way, those people who have decided in their heart, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to live for the Lord. In fair season and in the unfair season, when it seems like it's working and when it doesn't seem like it's working, I'm going to just decide in my heart, even when it doesn't make sense to me, I know God's still good. And I know that he works all things together for good to them who love him or are the called according to his purpose. You can hold on to that fundamental principle. And so when you're tempted to lose faith, the first step you need to take is you need to remember this fundamental principle, and that is that God is good, and especially to those who have decided in their heart they want to live for Him. Here's the second step you need to take. First, remember a fundamental principle. Secondly, this morning, you need to refrain from getting a false perception. Refrain from a false perception. As we go on in our text, we find that there came a time in Asaph's life where what he thought he knew was called into question. At some point, he had allowed a false perception to deceive him. I want you to see it in verse number 2 and 3. If you're there, say amen. The Bible says, but as for me, now Asaph's talking about his own personal experience, as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. 
For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He had been seduced into believing a convincing lie. I want you to think about what he's saying here. He'd essentially asked, if God is so good to me, then why do people who don't even know God and don't even live for God seem to have it so much better than me? If it's so worth it to live for God, then why am I here living for God and it seems like everybody who isn't living for God is doing better off than I am? It's a convincing lie that the devil had whispered into his ear. Because he was looking at his circumstance from a very narrow perspective. But this lie had began to fool him. And he's just relating this experience that he had in his life. And I'll tell you this, when you're tempted to lose faith, when you're tempted to walk away from God, you need to stop right where you are and ask yourself what lie it is that you have started to believe. Because it's never worth it. I don't care what it is. It's never worth it to walk away from someone like the Lord. More importantly, you need to ask yourself who it is that's telling you the lie. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul said, You did run well. Who did hinder you that you're not obeying the truth now? Who is it that's speaking into your life, whispering something that isn't true according to what the Holy Word of God has revealed to us? Because something's thrown you off kilter. Something in your life you started to believe that isn't true according to the word of God. And here is why you need to refrain from allowing yourself to get a false perception. Write this down first. You need to refrain from it because it is distracting. It is distracting. Now look at verse number two again. The Bible says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. The psalmist here admitted that there came a point where he almost turned aside from God. Where he almost walked away from his faith. This mic ain't working, is it? So I'm switching mics. This is mic number eight. I can hear myself now. All right. Someone told me the mic was dead. They texted it to me, and I saw the text message. So they thank you very much. But you need to avoid. Um, you need to avoid getting this false perception because it's distracting. Here's what happened for the psalmist. He allowed this truth, that, this false truth to enter into his heart, and it almost led him to turn aside, the Bible says. It almost led him to go astray. He was so convinced by this false perception that he almost left it all. And if you can imagine, all right, the song leader of Israel, he's leading in worship on one day, and the next day, He's talking about walking away from God. And any of you that served in ministry of any capacity know that is all too real from time to time. And this lie that the devil had told him, that he had started to believe it was distracting him from the truth. But not only was it distracting, but I see this as well, it was, it was distorted. It was distorted. Now look, uh, look with me here at verse number 3. As, as Asaph started listening to this, this lie, it, it warped his perception, and, and all of a sudden it, it seemed like those who were without God were doing so much better than he was. And you can hear the envy in his voice as he talks in verse 3. He says there in verse number 3, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the what? The prosperity of the wicked. That word prosperity is a word that means welfare. What he's saying here is God... They seem to be doing so well. 
Look at their condition in life. They're not, they're not struggling like I am. He goes on in verse 4, and he says, there are no bands in their death. Not only did he think that they were so prosperous, but here he talks about how they have, they're, they're so free. They're so prodigal. They have, they have, they have no problems in their life. They, they can do whatever they want. They don't have all these rules, all these regulations, all these things they're trying to do for God. They're free. They can live however they want, and it seems like they don't get any reprisal for it. He goes on in verse 4, and he says, uh, but their strength is firm. That word strength is a word that means prominence. He's essentially saying there, hey, they get so much attention. They're, they're not even living for you, and yet they're the people that are, that are on the forefront. They're the people that are popular in society, if you would. Verse number 5, the Bible says they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. They're problem-free, he said. I'm over here trying to live for you, and I've got all these problems, and they don't, have it. They don't ever have financial struggles. They don't seem to ever have the problems like I have. You can see the envy, and you can hear the envy in his voice as he's talking about these things. Verse 6, therefore pride compasses them about as a chain, and violence covers them as a garment. This is probably the worst part for him. They have everything going their way, and they're proud about it. I mean, they're proud about it. You, you, you live for that Jesus stuff? Well, it's, you know, just, you, 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 should, you should stop going to church. You should stop doing all that stuff. Look at my life. Look how good I've got it. They're starting to get prideful about it. They're starting to get uh, built up about how well they thought their life was going. And what's more than that, they become critical of others. He talks about them becoming violent towards other people. You see all these things he's saying. Verse number 7, he goes on and says, their eyes stand out or they're pushed forward with fatness or with riches or abundance or with the finest things, and they have more than their heart could wish. They have so, they, they, they have so much stuff, and yet they're always looking for more. They're always looking for more. Listen, if this doesn't define the people of this world, I don't know what does. Yeah, more than what you, more than what you ever could possibly use, and yet you always want something more. He looks at these people, and they, they have everything. They have all this stuff that, 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 that the world says that you're supposed to have. And here I am, I'm trying to live for you, and I'm just struggling by, and I don't have any of that stuff, God. Is it really worth it living for you? He goes on in verse 8, and he says, They are corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak uh, uh, loftily. He goes on and says, They're perverse. Listen, they're crooked. They're criminals. They're cheating people to make their money. The way that they're gaining and uh, they're stepping on people on their way up the corporate ladder. And, and, and all this is happening and, and they're still becoming better and they're still becoming more prominent. And I'm trying to do things right and I'm staying down here, God. Is it worth it living for you? Verse number 9, the Bible tells us, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Verse 11, and they say, how does God know and is their knowledge in the Most High? This is probably the worst of all of it. They're pagan. God, they talk against you. They defy you. They defy your knowledge. They defy the truth of God's word, and then their mouth walks through the earth. They act like they, act like they got everything figured out. All right? They're the Oprahs of the world. They're the Dr. Phil's of the world. They defy God's word. But boy, they act like they got it all figured out, don't they? It goes on in verse number 10. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are run out to them. This bothered him a lot. They're popular. All the people look at them, and they, they turn around and say, well, 
I was trying to live for God, but it looks like they've got something figured out I don't. I'm going to go try this out for a while. Waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. The water speaks of, um, uh, 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 of people doing them favors, essentially. Well, they're popular. People will bend over backwards to get, to get in with that kind of crowd. Then in verse number 12, he says this. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Always seemed like they were doing better. When he was looking at the wicked, when his focus was on them, it always seemed like they were doing so much better than he was. And Asaph, in in a very real way, allowed a false perception to deceive him. It distorted his mind. And let me tell you, if you aren't careful, you will get to the exact same place in your life. When you are struggling, Satan will make it seem like the lives of those who aren't living for God are so much better than yours. And this false perception... It's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's distracting from the truth. It's distorted. It's not really true. It just looks like it's true from your perspective. And then the third thing about it, I say this, is it's detrimental. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, the Bible says this, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and I've washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. And if I say I'll speak about this, behold, I should offend against the generation of your children. As long as Asaph's focus was on the prosperity of the wicked, he began to feel like everything he was living, living for was for nothing. God, why am I trying to live for you? Why am I trying to keep my hands clean? And these people over here, they don't even care. They don't even care about your truth. They don't even care about what you're telling them they're supposed to do. And they still seem to have it so much better than me. This false perception was detrimental because it almost led him to walk away. When you're not careful, you'll allow the same thing to happen in your life. I wonder today if you have, ha- if you have allowed the devil to put a fa- or, or this society to put a false perception in your heart about what is really, uh, that, that, that contradicts what is really true in God's word. I wonder if this is happening in your life today. And so we see step number one, you need to remember a fundamental principle. Step number two, you need to refrain from getting this false perception. But here's step number three if you want to write it down this morning. You need to recognize your foolish paradigm. Recognize your foolish paradigm. Now, what is a paradigm? Well, the paradigm is, is the way you look at something. Let's, let's put that picture on the screen if we could, all right? What do you see in this picture? I I heard both answers, okay? Two people and somebody said an hourglass. Somebody said a chess piece over here. Somebody else said a candlestick. Who knows what it is, okay? But there's two different things in this picture. Your paradigm is how you first looked at it. Understand how your paradigm changes when you see it from a different light? Here's a problem with Asaph. He was looking at things from a temporal perspective and not from an eternal perspective. When he looked at the prosperity of the wicked, he thought, they're doing so much better than me. Fast forward to eternity. They're not doing so good anymore, are they? And that's what our problem is. We oftentimes look at how our life is going from a very temporal perspective. And we think we got to keep up with the Joneses. We feel like we need to get in this rat race with the rest of the world when the fact of the matter is there's some things that matter a lot more than you having a certain amount of money in your bank account. By the way, it won't ever be enough. 
Well, I got my new boat. Well, two years, you're going to want another new one. Well, I got me a 2021 car. Well, that's, that's old news now. They're already getting ready to come out with 2022s. You'll never be able to keep up. You'll never be able to have enough. If you try to play that game, you need to change your paradigm. You need to recognize your foolish paradigm. The way that you've been looking at this life is not right. And that's exactly what uh, Asaph came to understand here. As we look at this, we see that his paradigm was way off. The way he was looking at his circumstance was all wrong, and it was hurting him. It was tearing apart his life. Notice what the Bible says in verse 16. He said, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. I allowed this to consume my life. It was tearing me up. It was too painful for me. Until what? Let's read verse 17 together. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. When he went into God's presence, he got God's perspective. See, up to this point, he was focused inward and outward. What he needed was to turn his focus upward. <laughs> and you keep your focus here, your perspective is going to be very limited. When you bring your problem to the Lord, it changes everything. And when he looked at things from God's perspective, he began to understand what was actually true in contradiction to the lie that the devil had told him. Verse number 18, what does he say? Surely thou didst set them in slippery places or in flattering places, places from which you can fall is the idea of that phrase, in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. He begins to see things from an eternal perspective. Well, it looks like they've got everything together. You know what? God, God has allowed them to go into that flattering position. They're going to fall. In a moment, the Bible says. It'll happen quicker than what anybody could have predicted. And specifically, I think it's talking about eternity here. Because listen, that rich man that died in Luke chapter 16, the Bible says in the end of one verse he died, and the next words in the Scripture are, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. In a moment, it all changes. You choose to live your life for this world. You live your life apart from Jesus Christ. Without faith in Jesus Christ, your destination is settled. You can be sure of that right now. Thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to die in your sins. You don't have to go to hell. Jesus has made a way of salvation for us. Praise God. But Asaph began to see, I was so wrong. In fact, he goes on and says, I was a fool. I looked at them and I was jealous of them. They have all that stuff, but they don't have what I have. I've got God. That's what he said in verse number, uh, verse number 21. He said, thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before you. Understand this. Asaph looked at himself and he said, God, I was like a dumb animal. I was just acting off of my emotions and my, and, and, and my, and my sinful nature. I was, just, I was just thinking and being motivated by the things that came to my mind. I wasn't being motivated by spiritual things. I was like a mindless beast. I was like a mindless animal. I was a fool. I was ignorant to think that I should be envious of the wicked. God, when I see things from your perspective, I realize those people, what they have is not going to last. 
But what I have when I walk with you and what I have with you, God, it's going to last for eternity. And it changed his perspective. That's why Jesus told us, lay not for yourselves things on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where these things don't corrupt. What is it going to profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What if you have everything the wicked has, but you don't, but you don't have God? Is it going to be worth it in the end? No, it won't. And Asaph began to have his perspective changed. And I want you to understand this. I don't have a lot of time to park here, but let me just make these statements to you. The first one I want to make to you is this. Your circumstance won't make sense without God. It won't make sense without God. There are a whole lot of things that happen in this world that wouldn't have made sense without God. Without God, Abraham dies a childless man and a pagan. With God, he becomes the father of many nations. Without God, Job's just another guy who lost it all. With God, Job, God saw Job through his trial, and in the end, he was blessed twice as much as he was at the beginning. And go on and on and talk about those circumstances. But you understand, your circumstance will not make sense without God. But with God, listen to me, with God, you have no idea what God has in store for you. Right now, you look at your circumstance and you think, how can God make any sense out of this? When God can take your mess and make a masterpiece out of it, if anybody can, he can. Right now, it might be abstract to you, but God's going to make it clear. You just wait. If you'll trust him. If you'll trust him. So listen to me. Um, uh, your circumstance won't make sense without God. And so here's the second statement I want to make. Your circumstance then must be evaluated from God's perspective and not your own. You need to change your mind about what you're going through. If you're tempted to think, this ain't worth it. I, I, I've tried this I've tried this living for God thing, and it's not worth it. It's not working for me. But people tell me about, about giving. I've tried to tithe, and boy, it's just, it's just too tight for me. I don't think that I can do it. Oh, well, I, I talked about tithing. I'm in trouble now. I move on from that, but sheesh. No. God will come through. Hey, if he gave you a promise in his word, he'll come through. You just need to trust him long enough to figure that out. You can take any other promise in the Bible, and that could be true for you as well. So long as you're looking at it from your own point of view, it won't make sense. If you look at it from God's perspective, everything changes. And here's the thing. When you, when you look at it through the light of God's word, it may not make sense to you right now, but what does make sense that is that you're trusting God and that God knows what's going on. When you start looking at things from God's perspective, it's, it's, it's kind of like, God, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm excited to find out what it is. Because I know what your word says, and I know what you promised me. It changes everything. And listen, it wasn't until Asaph went into the sanctuary that his perspective changed. Sanctuary is a word that, that speaks of a sacred place. Can I tell you something? You need to go to a sacred place. That sacred place is in communion with the Lord. 
So long as you're so focused on yourself and so focused on trying to figure, figure things out for yourself and you don't go to the Lord, it won't make sense. But the moment you humble your heart and say, God, I can't figure this out. I don't understand this. I don't want to walk away. And you turn to God. He changes your perspective. Everything changes. When you walk into the presence of God, you'll get the perspective of God. And oh, we need to understand that, church, because it's so easy for us to be fooled by these satanic lies. So step number one, you need to understand and remember a fundamental principle. No matter what you're going through in life, God is good. Step number two, you need to uh, refrain from getting a false perception. Step number three, you need to recognize your foolish paradigm, which leads us to the fourth step, and I'll have to be brief with this. You need to return to your favored position. Return to your favored position. Now think about this with me. Asaph recognized that the way he was looking at his situation was wrong, and then he repented. He realized, I've not been looking at this right. I've been a fool, God, to think that it'd be better off for me to live with the wicked than to live for you. And he repented. What that means is he had a change of heart. He had a change of mind which caused him to turn around and go a different direction. He was so focused on the wicked and how much better they had it than him, he was tempted to go that way. Then he got God's perspective and he said, God, I'm wrong. It's worth it living for you. It's worth it. It's worth it living a life for your glory. And he, t- he changed his mind. He had a repentance of his heart. Can I say for some of you, that's exactly what you need to experience in your life today? You are so hell-bent on living for things that won't matter for eternity, living for things that don't, that don't matter, uh, uh, matter when it comes to your faith. And today, you need to see things from God's perspective and have a moment of repentance in your heart and turn back in the direction that God wants you to go. Asaph realized what he enjoyed in the Lord was so much better, so much better than what he envied in the lost. What you have with God is so much better than what it seems like the lost people around you who don't have God have. So much better. I don't have time to park here, but here's what Asaph discovered, and I want us to see it as well. Verse 23, he said, nevertheless, I love that phrase. He said, I've been so foolish, God, thinking the wicked have it better than me. I've been so foolish to be in this position. Then he says, nevertheless. In spite of how dumb I am, how faithless I am, how doubtful I am, nevertheless. What does he say there? Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Um, uh, Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterwards receive me to, to glory. Asaph said, even though I have forsaken you in my heart, even though I've been tempted to forsake you, In the end, I'm still here because Asaph came to a realization, God, you're all I have. I don't have any hope without you. You're all I have. What did he have? Well, you study study these verses out. We found out that he talks about how he had God's presence. God was with him. He was holding him by his right hand. He had God's purposes. In verse number uh, 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 24, he said, you will guide me with your counsel. Um, He had God's word. He had God's purposes. He had God's direction for his life. And then he says, I have God's promises. Afterwards, you're going to receive me to glory. Listen, after all of this happened right here, Asaph came to a point in his life when he realized 
They seem like they have everything I thought I wanted. But when I see it from your perspective, God, I come to a realization, you're all I have. And friend, that's a good moment in your life when you realize that. That God is all you have. That realization was followed up with verse 25. And that is, he realized God is all that he needed. Verse 25 The Bible says, whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. When he thought about how good God had been to him here at the end, he asked himself a question, why would I want anything but you? Why would I want all the stuff those people have that comes with the sorrow, that comes with the trouble, that comes with the heartache, and then the end destruction? I don't want all that, God. I have you, and I have all that I need in you. Listen to me, until you come to a point in your life when you get so low that you realize God is all you have, it is not then until you'll realize that God is really all you need. And that's the place that Asaph came to. But when he realized God is all, all I got, he said, God, why would I want anything else? You realize all you're going to have in heaven is God? You can't bring anything with you. And that's going to be enough. I would say that's what makes heaven heaven. Because it's all God. That's all I need. And that led him to a final realization. God is all I have. God is all I, uh, God is all I, God is all I want. And the third realization he came to is that God is all that I need. Verse 26. The Bible says, my flesh and my heart fail. What's the next two words? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He realized God is all he had. He realized God was all he wanted. I don't want anything else but you, God. And that brought him to that final realization that God is all he needed. He didn't think he had the strength to go on. He said, my strength and my heart fail. But God's my strength. You need God's power. He said, but God's my portion. You need God's portion. You don't have, you, you, you're not strong enough to live in this messed up world without God. You need God. And the reason you need God is because God gives you a purpose for living. He's your portion. He's your reward. Listen, if you're living your life for any other purpose than that which God created you for, you will never be satisfied. God created us for his glory. And when you get your mind on the fact that God is your reward, what do I get at the end of my life? A mansion? I get this, that? Who cares? If you get God, you got it all. God is my chief pursuit. So the Apostle Paul said, for to me, to live is Christ. <laughs> to die is gain. i got to go to be with him. It's all Christ. You need God's power. You need God's portion the last thing I want you to write down here is that you need God's perspective. Verse 27, for lo, they that are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all them that go a-whoring from you or are unfaithful to you. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all thy works. When you lose faith, listen to me. When you lose faith, what you need is to get close to God 
and get his perspective again. You'll often be tempted with lies from the devil if it's worth it. I don't know if it's worth it to live for God. I don't know if it's worth it going to church. I don't know if it's worth it. Uh, some of you VBS workers might have felt this <laughs> the past two weeks, okay? I don't know if it's worth it. 21 kids saved. I think that's worth sacrificing a couple hours of sleep. It does make a difference. Boy, when you get into God's presence, you get God's perspective. You realize that's all you need. God has the power I need. God has the God is my portion. He's the reason I'm living. And God understands what's going on in my life, and He's going to make sense of it in the end. All things are going to work together for good. God, you're all I need. You got it all figured out. I'm just going to trust you. The last thing I want you to see, and we're done. Back in verse 15. He said, I will say, I will speak thus. That's when he was still talking about how he thought the wicked were doing so much better than him. That word speak is the same word that's used in verse 28, translated as declare. He said, what what happened here is essentially this. When he had a false perspective, all he was talking about, all he was thinking about was how good the, the wicked people had it compared to him. But then when he came into God's presence, he got God's perspective. In the end, he says, I'm going to declare, or I am going to recount what you have done for me. So instead of telling people, instead of testifying, if you would, about how bad he had it and how good the people of this world had it, it changed. When he came into God's presence, now he wanted to talk about how good God had made it for him and what God had done in his life. And when you experience a work of God like Asaph did in your life, here's the wonderful thing about it. You might have some tough things that you're going through, but you're not going to talk about them. You're going to talk about what your God is going to do through them. And Boy, some of you have been through some tough valleys, and God's brought you through. And what a wonderful thing it is to look back at those things and say, hey, I'm going to declare all his works Let me just tell you what God has done for me. That's a beautiful place to come to in your life. Have you ever been tempted to lose your faith, to walk away from God? I just don't know about this stuff anymore. When you get to that place, you need to remember God's good. Even when when it doesn't feel good to you with what you're going through right now, you need to recognize that you're looking at it the wrong way. If you come into the presence of God, he'd change your perspective. And then you need to return to the realization that you don't need what you think you don't have that other people have. All you need is God. If you'll just trust him, he'll prove it to you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.